0: Good morning. Thank us on now. Um, I'm Grace. If I haven't met you yet, welcome again. We're glad you're here. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading our, our scripture reading for us. So feel free to pull out your Bible and turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. And if you don't have a Bible, I think it's going to be on the screen. There's also free Bibles out front, so feel free to grab one when you head out. Um, so this morning, I'm going to read Hebrews 10:19 through 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Awesome. Good morning, friends. Good morning. Good morning, as my wife says. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, I realize that the smell of chili is filling every nook and cranny of our space currently and that your mind is solely focused on either A, winning this competition, or simply consuming as much chili as humanly possible directly after our gathering. So I am going to try to keep our teaching more brief than normal. Which might require a miracle. Not sure. We have been in quite possibly, I I think, the most important teaching series in the life of our church and community for the foreseeable future. Because it is laying the foundation of our communal rhythm of life. It is laying this groundwork, this framework, and this focus for us as a community to move away from abstract values and move towards tangible practices and rhythms that orient us towards the person of Jesus and what he offers us to participate in. And unlike most teaching series or or sermon series, we will not simply move on to another book or another topic but rather continue to seek and cultivate these five rhythms into the life of our church and community. You know, usually we have a sermon series and we go through it and then you just move on to the next one. and You kind of forget about what you learned. This is different. This is the vision series for our community, laying a foundation of something we will constantly come back to as a community. Our desire is that we become, continuously, a practicing Jesus community. Not a passive community of attenders, but an engaged community of participants. Following and practicing the way of Jesus. Being with Him. Becoming like Him. And doing what He did. Those are the three Goals and orientations of a disciple of Jesus to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. These five weeks are just the starting point, just the beginning, just the origin for this journey that we are embarking on. It's a generic overview. We've kind of been looking more at the why behind these five rhythms and the uh, underbelly of it all, but we will continue to press further, especially in November, because we are going to be hosting a Rhythm of Life workshop where you will literally flesh out practically how you plan to implement these rhythms into everyday life literally opening your schedule and calendar and putting these rhythms into blocks of time into your schedule and calendar. I was meeting this past week with um, my spiritual director, and he basically asked me, he was like, tell me what your schedule looks like during the week. Tell me about your rhythms. Tell me about your practices, and how are they in your calendar? And so we will take time in November To actually put these practices into our calendar, because if we don't have intentionality, they will fall by the wayside. And to be a rooted and and foundational community with a rhythm of life, it will require all of us, including myself, to open our calendar and purposefully place these practices into our life. Of course, knowing there is tons and tons of grace. There is a lot of grace in this conversation around rhythm of life, but it will require us to be strategic, opening our calendar and putting them into our schedule. The subtle unspoken challenge for us, I think, to our discipleship to Jesus in the West is that it is too spontaneous and impromptu. It's too casual and nonchalant. Usually out of the fear of monotony and routine, Yet, it is in the ordinary where we are deeply formed, deeply changed, and deeply shaped. Many of us fear monotony. We fear, I don't want to get into this routine. I don't want it to be monotonous. It's not a bad thing. Because ultimately, what ends up happening when we fear monotony, we end up having a nonchalant, impromptu discipleship to Jesus. And it requires intentionality and effort. Tish Harrison Warren wrote a wonderful book a couple of years ago called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in it, she says, the crucible of our formation is in the monotony of our daily routines. It is in the crucible of our formation in this monotonous everyday routine that we are shaped and formed and transformed into Christ's likeness and into his image. Ordinary is not a bad thing. Routine is not a bad thing. If I had a routine of dating my wife every single week, she would love it. Would not be a bad thing for our marriage or our relationship. It would actually add to it. Now, we might change it where we go, but that practice or that routine is helpful and beneficial to cultivate intimacy. We've already discussed the rhythm of praying, resting, and learning. And you can go back and listen to all three of those teachings on our website or on our podcasts if you've missed them. And today, we begin to move outward as we discuss the rhythm of gathering. We've moved inward, and now we are moving outward, looking at the rhythm and practice of gathering. And this rhythm obviously mirrors the way of Jesus, as we will discuss, but also fulfills our yearning for community and relationship. Something all of us as human beings naturally crave and desire and yearn for. Community. To be known. To know. To be in relationship, not just with God, but with humanity and with others. And one of the tragedies... That we often are sucked into as the church, especially again in the modern West, is that we forget that Christianity is an Eastern religion. It was not birthed in the United States, it was not birthed in North America, it was not birthed in the Western world. It was birth in the eastern part of the world. And that we, as the people of God, were originally birthed as a messianic movement. Our heritage and tradition comes out of the Jewish culture and way of life. Jesus himself was a Jewish rabbi who came from the line of David and the tribe of Judah. And often we forget that Christianity is, in fact, an Eastern religion. And so we begin to then import Western ideals into what was originally conceived as an Eastern religion with its own practices and values and way of life. And the biggest implication of extracting ourselves from our origin is that our understanding of the way of Jesus and the birth of the early church primarily comes through the lens of Western individualism. Our primary lens to view Christianity and the way of Jesus comes from this lens that we put on every single day that's been given to us by our culture and by our society called Western individualism. Versus a more Eastern approach, which is and was communal and collectivist. Okay? The Eastern part of the world is much more communal and collectivist. And the majority of the scriptures were written to a collective group of people. And all of the scriptures were written for a collective group of people majority are written to a collective group of people, and all of the scriptures were written for a collective group of people. This is why it always trips me up anytime I see someone who just goes all in on Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. And you're like, that's my life verse. That's my life verse. It's like, do you realize he's speaking to a group of people in Babylonian exile who still have seven more decades to go? Like, let's, let's just think about this for a second. Our hermeneutic, our understanding of the text, our understanding of the scriptures is so formed and shaped by Western individualism that we take passages out of context and just apply them to our own individual life and circumstances. Doesn't mean there's not something to learn, but it doesn't look at the full scope of how the text was written. Majority of the scriptures were written to a collective group of people. And specifically, that passage was written to a collective group of people. In the Old Testament, the primary recipient was the nation of Israel. and the New Testament, being the, the church, the people of God, the ecclesia. In fact, most of the time when we see the word you used in the scriptures, it is in the plural form. And should more properly be read as y'all, if you're from the south. Or if you're from up north, you guys, okay? If you're from up north, it's you guys. Anytime you read you, majority of the time you read you in the scriptures, it's probably y'all. Or it's you guys, depending on if you're from Buffalo or if you're from down in Mississippi or something. I don't know. Just depends. But either way, it is a plural form of the word you, so, when we are formed by this notion of Western individualism, which by the way, is very white and eurocentric, okay what we tend to do is twofold. Here's what happens when we put, when we put this lens of Western individualism on. The first thing is, I become the center of the story, versus Jesus being the center of the story. The second is that the story is about me and Jesus versus the story being about Jesus and his people. You catch that? Western individualism would say, and sometimes it's with good intention. We're just ignorant. I become the center of the story. Jesus came to save me versus Jesus is the center of the story and he's invited you to participate in it. He is the main character. He is the protagonist. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The second is that the story is usually about me and Jesus. It's all about me and Jesus. Remember that Stellar Cart song, that Stellar Cart song back in the day? You got me and Jesus by your I'm sorry. You guys don't know Stellar Cart, do you? You're not missing anything, all right? <laughs> Aaron Cohns is like, that's a throwback, Yes. The story is more so about Jesus and his people, let alone all of creation, all of the created order. So keep in mind, Western individualism, which is a secular cultural ideal, something we aim for in the West, and is counter to the kingdom of heaven, has diseased the church. It's diseased us. This is not how global Christianity is expressed among majority world Christians. I want us to know that. In fact, if you were to talk to an Asian Christian or an African Christian or a Latino Christian and say, My faith is about me and Jesus, they would look at you puzzled and confused. Or if you said, and I hear this very often, I am the church. Wherever I go is church. That would be considered heretical and ludicrous, and I'm not talking about the rapper. Okay, ludicrous, heretical, not tr- some of y'all are like who is ludicrous? Some of Gen Z are like who is ludicrous? Again, you're not missing much. got more excited about that than anything else I've said all morning. (laughs) Y'all are like, he's so relevant. Oh, geez. (laughs) If you're older than like 25. If you're like 18, you're like, who is ludicrous? Anyway. If you talk to a a Christian across the world, which by the way, the average Christian across the world is an African woman. Every missiologist will say the average Christian across the world is represented by an African woman. The center of Christianity in the world is in North Africa, geographically. It's not in the West. In fact, missionaries are now coming where? Here. To America. Because we've lost our absolute mind. Anyway, another story for another day. We live in an age where people want a customized, personalized, and Nike ID version of following Jesus. Where you can just go on Nike.com, put in what you want on your sneaker... And boop, pops out and is sent to you by FedEx in the mail a couple days later. Apart from the gathered community called the church, the ecclesia. And by the way, that simply isn't found anywhere in the New Testament. Personalized, individualized faith that is packaged for you specifically is not found in the New Testament that we read. New Testament scholar Justo Gonzalez says, Worship takes place in community. This is both true of the services in the temple, which will be the Jewish side of our origin, and of the Eucharist, which will be the Christian side. It is important for us not to forget that Christianity is a communal faith. It certainly has its profoundly personal dimension, but a purely private faith, no matter how apparently orthodox, Is not Christian. If your faith journey is not communal, it is not holistically Christian. And this is the very thing the writer of Hebrews is thinking about when he is writing this chapter in Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, he is pointing to the same thing Paul does in Ephesians 4, that the only way we can experience the fullness of Christ is by participating in the gathered community that is the ecclesia, that is the church, that is the bride, that is the house of God. And he says, and I'm going to read this again for us, think about the the subject or the focal point of this chunk of Scripture. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The focal point in this passage is that we, as the people of God, now have access to the presence of God. And that in the presence of God is where we are shaped, transformed, sanctified, purified, and cleansed, molded, and shaped. And did you know that in this very short passage, there are 15 communal references? 15 references of community. Brothers and sisters, we, us... House of God, one another, meeting together, some. There are multiple references in this passage that are communal. This is not a passage just for quote unquote me and Jesus. Even when we read, let us draw near to God, we automatically assume, let me draw near to God. Is that true? Sure, certainly. But it says, let us. Let us collectively draw near to God. Let's enter into the throne room together. Let's be changed in the presence of God and purified in the presence of God together. This is a charge to a community of Jewish Christians who had the tendency to neglect gathering and had forgotten... What Jesus did on the cross and what he has invited us into where the veil was torn and we now have access to the presence of God. Something that was only accessed one time a year on the day of atonement by the chief high priest and that was it. Now we have access to the presence of God. And these Jewish Christians aren't simply neglecting the gathering because of inconvenience or lack of time or because the the teaching or the preaching is boring (laughs) But because there is fear of persecution from the Roman government. Hebrews is written maybe five to ten years before the destruction of the temple. There's rampant physical persecution that's happening in this moment. And the Greek word here for meeting together is epi It's a combination of two words, epi and synagogue. Synagogue meant to gather together wasn't simply a building, though that's what it came to be known as, a building or a physical location, but it meant to gather together. More specifically in the Jewish context, it meant to gather together for the sake of instruction and learning. In fact, in the Hebrew context, a synagogue meant house of learning house of instruction. And for a Jew to go to synagogue was a crucial part of their weekly Sabbath rhythm, sometimes a daily rhythm. It was the central gathering place in a community. And to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men. This is why when we read Acts and we see Paul's going out on his missionary journey and he goes to Philippi and there's women gathering by the riverside talking about the scriptures. That's not synagogue because there's not 10 men present. You had to have an established 10 men in the first centuries to have synagogue. It was at synagogue where there would be prayer, singing of psalms, reading and explanation given of passages from the Hebrew scriptures. Sounds familiar, does it not? not. Singing, praying, teaching. The model that we have before us within the church over the last two millennia is modeled after synagogue. It's modeled after our Jewish origins. Even now, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, there would be a Friday evening gathering, more than likely a Saturday morning gathering, and Saturday afternoon gathering. Some of you guys grew up in, in churches where you had Sunday night, service as well as Sunday morning service, you know, and you got the Wednesday night service or you got the Monday night prayer meeting, you know. I tell people I had a drug problem growing up. I was always drugged to church, you know. I just constantly drugged to church. Talk to somebody who's Jewish. They're in the synagogue constantly, constantly gathering. Now it's hard enough for us to get together one hour a week, a couple times a month, okay? Okay. Interesting, is it not, to see how individualism has impacted our understanding of what it means to gather. Keep in mind that for Jews, this was not optional. It was customary. Synagogue was customary even in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 reads, He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, there's our word, as was his, what? Custom. Not preference. Not even desire. Not even choice. It was customary. This is what you did. It's what you do. You wake up on Sabbath, you go to the synagogue, or you... First start on Friday night, Sabbath, and then eventually on Saturday, you would go to synagogue. If synagogue means gathering for prayer and instruction, and Jesus had the rhythm of gathering, and we are to practice the way of Jesus, then we are to practice gathering together. So, what the writer of Hebrews is communicating is that we should stay in the habit of gathering rather than... The habit of not gathering as some were and as some are. He's juxtaposing having the habit of not gathering versus having the habit of gathering. Habit in the Greek here is the word ethos. It's the same word that is used in the Luke 4 passage for custom. A synonym for ethos is culture. If you want to find another word that means ethos, it's the word culture, meaning that our habits shape our culture. It isn't the other way around. Culture doesn't shape habits. Habits shape culture. Our practices and our rhythms as a community are our ethos. That is our culture. A culture is made up of habits. So this is why we are focusing so much on practices and habits, because it's our habits that shape our culture and create our ethos. Things must become customary for us as a community. Now I mentioned the word used in the Hebrews 10 passage for meeting together was episynagogue, which only appears twice in the New Testament in this Greek format. It isn't just synagogue or gathering, but epi means higher or above and can actually be translated as higher gathering or above gathering, which makes perfect sense in the context of this passage. When the people of God gather, it isn't a generic assembly. It's not just going to Bank of America Stadium on Sunday to watch the Panthers play or going to some basketball arena to watch a team play, or even just getting together generically with friends or hanging out. It's not a generic assembly. It is a higher gathering. It's an above gathering, where what is above or what is higher or what is divine or what is transcendent comes down, where we enter the throne room together communally and collectively. It's like going up to Sinai together. The presence of God in the Old Testament often dwell, obviously, in the temple, but also on Sinai, on the mountaintop, on Zion. It's a higher gathering, so we're entering into the presence of God together. It's not just a generic coming together. It has a divine element to it. And when we gather... There there certainly is worship and instruction, but it should also be a space where we spur one another on or where we stir up the Spirit in us collectively, not just myself, not just Jordan, not just a pastor on our team. We spur one another on, stir up. The spirit in us, or encourage one another toward the disposition of love or agape manifested in good deeds. We actually are to bring something to the gathering. I love that many people brought chili this morning. That's symbolic because we should always bring something to the gathering every single Sunday morning. We should bring a level of encouragement where we begin to deposit courage into one another. We are to collectively bring something so that we stir one another on towards love and good deeds. Next week, we'll talk about contribution as a, as a, a practice for our community and what it means to contribute in society and in the local church. So the gathering should result always in all of us experiencing a deposit of courage, I hope that when you leave our gathering, when you leave on a Sunday morning, that you have a level of courage that you didn't have before. You have a level of boldness that you didn't have before. You have a level of bravery that you did not have before. Why? Because you entered the presence of God with the people of God and got stirred up in the Spirit. or spurred on towards love and good deeds. This is why the end goal of gathering, teaching and worship, so to speak, should compel us to action to change, to a new behavior. It is a space where the slingshot is pulled back and then released into the week. Now there is a reason why we chose the word gather and not community. Gathering is a verb. It is a literal action and behavior. Community is not. Community is a noun. It's not an action. Gathering is the essential practice, friends, that brings forth community. To be in community requires gathering together. It requires the action of coming together. It is essential. Gathering is the input and the ideal output is community or family. And the church has been gathering for worship and instruction for two millennia. And if you want to go even further back into our Jewish heritage, even longer. This is what we do. This is what we are. It's not the fullness of who we are, but it is a core primary part. It is a primary rhythm and activity of the historic church. Again, it's not the fullness of it. Gathering is not, but it is an essential part. Church, or ecclesia means an assembly of called-out ones. An assembly of called-out ones. And I find it very difficult, and this might hurt your feelings, and I'm okay with that. So don't send me an email after our service. If you want to talk to me about it, I'd love to. I find it very difficult for anyone to claim to be a disciple of Jesus. And not be a part of the gathering of the local church. It disregards our historic practice, our Jewish origins, and the teachings of Jesus and writers of the New Testament. And a cliche phrase that I hear often, all of us do, and some of us may even say this you don't go to church, you are the church. Is that true? Some of you're like, "Uh, does he want me to respond right now?" A.J. <laughs> Swoboda says this: "No wonder we have a generation of people who follow Jesus without the church. They're just enacting the metaphor we gave them. Of course, in the end, it is both. We are the church. But because we are the church, we gather as a church. A body dismembered will no longer live. Remaining connected is absolutely necessary. These aren't mutually exclusive being and gathering. We do go to church, and we are the church. It is both and. We gather together as the people of God, as the church, and we are the church in the world, the family. And I want you to know this as well. Online church is a paradox and a dichotomy. Got one good response out of that. (laughs) The church is an embodied people who meet together in a geographical place and location. In fact, when Paul would plant churches throughout the Greco-Roman world due to the diaspora, where would he go first? The synagogue. And it was at the synagogue where churches would be planted out of the synagogue. It's all in the book of Acts. Part of the word synagogue means we must gather together in one geographical place, not online. That's excarnational. The radical part of the story of Jesus is it's incarnational. It's embodied. It's fleshed out. And listen to this. This is fascinating. We now have empirical research that shows that attending religious worship services has powerful benefits for your health and quality of life. And today is World Mental Health Day, by the way. So we're just going to jump on the train here, just for a second. Tyler Vanderweil, who is an epidemiologist and biostatistics professor at Harvard University, what a boring job, you know? Jeez, brilliant mind. Like, this epidemiologist and biostatistics. Before COVID, nobody knew what epidemiologist was. You know, this is fascinating. He's like, yeah, I've been doing this for years. Anyway, he's at Harvard University. He has found that attending religious services at least weekly is associated with 25% to 35% reduced mortality over 10 to 15 years. Empirical data and research from an epidemiologist at Harvard This is from a USA Today article where he was interviewed. The title of the article was, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. (laughs) Indeed, health and religion are very much connected. Professor Vanderweel's new research with colleagues at Harvard University, building on more than 20 years of prior work in this area, suggests that attending religious services brings about better physical and mental health. Adults who do so at least once a week versus not at all have been shown to have a significantly lower risk of dying over the next decade and a half. The results have been replicated in enough studies and populations to be considered quite reliable. After all, the research has shown that service attendance, rather than private spirituality or solitary practice strongly predicts health. Something about communal religious participation appears to be essential. That's USA Today. That's not Christianity Today. It's a secular news article speaking to the importance of gathering together. Now, one of the most powerful elements, and we're going to close with this one of the most powerful elements that Jesus introduces to gathering or synagogue is a meal. He gives us a table. It isn't a replacement for synagogue, but merely an addition to it. And I want to quickly walk through five things that the table is and represents for us. And why it's necessary and important. The first is that the table is the most accessible gathering space It's the most accessible gathering space. Listen, we are in the South. We all got to eat. Okay? We got to eat. We got to gather. We have at least 21 meals a week. Some of you, maybe it's just 14. If you don't eat breakfast, I don't know. We have multiple meals throughout the week. It is accessible. It's an accessible gathering space. We all have a table. We all have to eat. The second is that the table is a place for welcome. It exudes presence and hospitality. I love when people come to our home for dinner. I love it. I love when people come to the table and we have candles on, and soft jazz music, and spaghetti, which we do every single time someone comes over to our home for dinner. Or tacos. or tacos, yes. It's a place of welcome and presence and hospitality. And then I love when someone goes, hey, you want to go sit on the couch? Like we finished dinner, and like, hey, you want to go sit in the living room? I love that let's continue the conversation. Let's continue our time together. The second, or the third thing, excuse me, is the table is a place for family. It's a place for family. The table cultivates relationships. Families that eat together stay together. Again, in a recent study, 84% of parents agreed that family meals were important. But only 50% of family dinners were eaten together. And there's even more statistics on the benefits, on our emotional and mental health of our families eating together at the table. And if we're the family of God, we got to eat together. And we got to invite people who aren't a part of the family of God to the table. Come to the table. Come to the banquet. The invitation's been given. It's accessible. It's non-threatening. I'm not going to preach at you. I just want to eat with you. A place for family. You can have a lot of hard conversations at the table. You can. And some of y'all have been part of those. Some of you got family members, you know what I'm talking about, who just bring stuff up, you're like, why do they just say that? <laughs> it's Christmas, mom, stop. Jeez. Last year, whoo, fall of last year, 2016, some great conversations around the dinner table, All right. Uncle Joe brought it up again. Here we go. You know? We have hard conversations, and sometimes it drives us nuts, but we're family. We have conversations. It's also a place where we celebrate together. It's a place of story. Stories are are shared at the dinner table. When Jesus talks about remembrance of me, it's it's a call to story, to remember the story of Jesus. And again, as I said a second ago, it's a place for celebration. Again, Jesus comes out of a Jewish context where there are festivals throughout the year, seven primary feasts throughout the Jewish calendar. Jews could party. They would celebrate. And guess what? When the Lord returns, the consummation of all things is depicted as a banquet, as a party, as a meal. We have to come around the table as the people of God. It's an important rhythm and practice for all of us. So, five things that the table is. It's accessible, it's a place for welcome, it's a place for family, it's a place for stories, it's a place for celebration. It's deeply important. In Matthew chapter 11, it says in verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Tim Chester talks about how in, in Luke's gospel account, Jesus is either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or going, or leaving a meal. Those three kind of Dispositions of Jesus. He's always at the dinner table. Jesus didn't just teach people, he ate with people. He didn't just gather with disciples, he gathered with sinners. And we must be a people who prioritize gathering and eating. Gathering weekly with the church, which is what we do on Sunday morning, and gathering weekly as the church. With the world around us, with those in our social sphere, with our colleagues, our friends, those that are curious, those that are closed off, our neighbors, invite them to the table. Honestly, if I sat down and asked you and said, When was the last time you invited a neighbor over for dinner? What would you say? Like, we as the people of God should be the most hospitable people in the world. We should have more meals with people than any other religion in the world because Jesus gives us a table to invite people to. We must prioritize gathering and make this customary and eating as well throughout the week. It should be customary for gathering, for teaching and worship, as well as customary to gather around the table. And that is what we are going to do today. I'm excited to be able to share in a meal together. Get to know each other. Meet somebody you don't know. Say, hey, what's your story? What do you do? What do you love? What's your favorite color? I don't know. You know I think of, like, why is it on a first date you always go to dinner? It's to get to know the person, you know. Some guys are like, I didn't know that was the first date. <laughs> uh, that's why you're single. Um, anyway, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Gathering together as the family is deeply important. This is customary. And my hope is that you're compelled to action, that we spur one another on, that we encourage one another, we de- deposit courage and boldness into our family when we gather together weekly. And my hope is that during the week, we begin to see rhythms of, of having meals. I would encourage you, have a meal, if you can, with at least two people each week. Each week, have, have dinner or, or a lunch or something, or even coffee is fine. With two people in the week, make that a practice. Put it in your calendar. It's fruitful. It's wonderful. It's formational. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to enter into our time of chili cook-off madness. And then I'm going to have Jordan come up and give us some instructions. Holy Spirit, we love you. And we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are present, that you are here, that you are among us, that you love us, that you desire to commune with us. God, help us to recognize our deep longing for human connection, our deep longing for relationship and for intimacy and for fellowship. God, may we come around the table together during the week. May we make it customary for us to gather together on Sunday morning for teaching, for worship, for singing, as we enter the throne room, as we draw near to God together in this higher gathering. Holy Spirit, I pray for the person who is new today who's like, I don't even know what this is all about. I'm just curious, or a friend just invited me. I pray that they were poked and prodded. I pray that you were poked and prodded today just a bit, that you leave with just a pebble in your shoe to wrestle with some of the thoughts that we talked through today. We thank you, Jesus. And God, may we view our practicing of the way as something that we do together. We love you. Bless this meal we're about to have. May it be a time of encouragement, connection, getting to know one another, friendly competition. May no feelings be hurt. May we have a wonderful time. In Jesus' name, amen.